Hello. Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest." So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has been given, who has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hey, uh, good morning. Everybody all right? Are we okay? Are we awake? We good? All right, good. Both of you. Now, um, so before we get going today, uh, this is our passage, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna come at this from a different angle entirely. Um, it's not so much going to be about like the moral of the story. It's going to be about how you came to your understanding of the moral of the story, um, and we're gonna talk about sort of interpretation of scripture. We're gonna talk about how to read it. Um, and uh, we're going to go a few different directions, and I think it'll be good. It'll be beneficial. Now, um, before we do that, though, I have to take off my pastor hat for a second and put on my dad hat, because we need to talk. I'd like to invite you to sit on the bed next to me and have a heart-to-heart. Um, you're not awake. Okay. Good. good. Okay. Um, now, um, we, in the last few months, have sort of peaked... Uh, in some areas, like last week, we actually had to turn some children away from one of the kids' rooms um, because there's a limit on what we can actually put in the kids' rooms. Um, and uh, we, a couple of times, have sort of maxed out the room. Right now, we're good. It's Memorial Day weekend, so it's a little more relaxed. There's a little more room. And we're a little heavy on this side than we are on this side, and that's fine. That's cool. I don't know why. Um, and, uh, but we're, as a governing board and as an elder board, we've been trying to figure out some solutions for, like, 
Easter, we had, we had over 1,000 people. Um, we only seat 350. So we had two services, and if the fire marshal had showed up, we're toast. Um, so we, um, we had to figure some stuff out. So we're trying to figure out what to do and how to solve this. The problem is we're running up against a wall because we have, uh, we, we'd like to go to th- maybe three services, but we don't have the staff to do that. Um, and we can't hire the staff to do that because there's not enough money to do that. Um, uh, we've thought about adding more space and building out a little bit and adding more space for all the people. Um, but again, there's no money for that either. Um, and we've thrown around different options. But really, as we go over the books, there's, there's a thing that we see that we think you need to see. And I think it'll help you. If, you're, if it's your first time here, like, just hang out and, uh, and just observe like, we're a normal community, just like everyone else. Um, and we have, you know, housekeeping stuff. Um, so there's a, there's a church finance thing. We rarely talk about finances here as a church. We don't pass any plays or anything like that. We just expect of like, it, to, it, if, if you have some, you'll give. If you don't, you won't. And that's fine. Just serve in whatever way you can. But I wanted to be, at least let you know of where we're at. Um, right now, we have about 650 attendees. Um, 6,000 monthly podcast listeners. 6,000 a month. I don't know where you guys are. Wherever you're listening from, less than 25% of these listens are in Tampa. So they're like around the world, everywhere. So aloha or alfiderzain. Is that the right? That's, that's goodbye, I think, right? No. Um, so wherever you guys are and you're listening, this is for you too. Um, we have less than 150 recurring giving units. That's it. That's 150 people make this whole thing happen. 150 giving units. So it could be a family or whatever. And the average giving unit is like $300 a month. Um, and so um, I'm just putting this out there. That means that 25% of our people are shouldering 100% of the financial burden. And 75% of our people benefit from what 25% of the people are building. So 75% of you are enjoying what 25% of you have, have provided. And for those of you who are givers, thank you so much. We have staff with families and kids and we... we we do everything we can to take care of them well, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, I'm speaking to those who are not participating in this way, um, because the fact is, it's simple things, like if non-givers were to give $25 a month, we would exceed budget by $150,000. Um, and that's astronomical. Like, that can't imagine having any kind of surplus, especially not like that. Um, because, uh, you know, we're not a staff-heavy church um, I'm the only full-time paid staff member. Everyone else is part-time. Um, we don't have big benefits for all of our staff. Um, and we give a lot of money to missionaries. There's people counting on us. Um, so if there's anything that you can do, if you can step up in some way, um, $5, $10, $25 a month, um, that would be a huge help. And that would change a lot of things, especially going into summer. We just kind of watch our bank account drop during the summer and it picks back up in the fall. When everybody comes back, don't forget about us. <laughs> um, it gets a little drastic, and we, have, we save up emergency funds for stuff like that. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. And, 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 and Dad's asking for your participation in the house chores. So take me off my dad hat and put back on my pastor hat. Hi, how are you? Good to see you all. My name's Tommy. I'm the pastor here. Um, so uh, this is what we're talking about today. I'll leave that, and we're going back to our passage. Um, and by the way, um, all giving can be done right through the website, just watermarktampa.com. So there's that. Um, and, uh, that's for the podcast people as well, wherever you are. Um, okay, so our passage today um, is really unique because 
uh, it presents us with a bit of a problem that you may not even be aware of that a problem exists in this passage. Maybe you have uh, seen the problem, but may you, maybe you have not. Um, because the fact is that interpretations of this text uh, vary widely across Christian cultures. They really do. There are certain texts that American evangelicals interpret one way, um, like this passage, uh, the passage of the prodigal son, um, and, there's, and there's several others. But other cultures, minority and impoverished cultures, interpret literally the exact opposite way. Like the story is absolutely flipped upside down. And it's obvious to them that that interpretation is the way to go. And so I wanted to kind of talk about that. So let me set the story up for you so you'll see it. Um, four people. They all kind of look the same. Um, uh, four people. And uh, so there's a, there's a master. This is a, an ancient patriarchal time. Patriarchy and master, servant, slaves is the setting of scriptures. It's not the message of scriptures. It is the setting, though, in which it takes place. Um, so there's a master with three slaves. To one of them, he gives five bags of gold. To one of them, he gives two bags of gold. And one of them, he gives one bag of gold. Because the master's going on a trip. And while the master is away, um, he's expecting the household to run as it always has. And these are the three apparently most responsible ones that he puts in charge over the household to run it. Um, and so to one he gives five bags of gold, to another he gives two bags, and to another one bag each according to his own ability. Um, to really get into what exactly hap- is happening here, we need to understand the, the, the context of the word bag of gold. Um, the NIV says bag of gold, but it's, it's not a bag of gold. They say that so that you will have a picture in your head of a certain amount of wealth and what we're dealing with. But the fact is the word here is the word talenta. Um, sometimes it's, tra- it's translated talent. And actually, um, depending on what version of the Bible you're using, it's going to say bag of gold or it's going to say coin or it's going to say talent. And actually, sometimes growing up, I used to hear preachers would interpret this passage and say, God gives everyone talents. And like, maybe you can play guitar or you can play piano. That is not what this is about at all. And if you've had to sit through those sermons, um, take the good from it. But that's not, what, that's not what's actually going on here, okay? So just like, I appreciate that. Moving on. Um, A talent is an actual coin. It's a measurement. It looks like this. This is a talent. It is the largest um, measurement of coinage in the ancient world. It is equivalent to uh, 57 to 74 pounds of silver, depending on like what kind of coins you're using and how pure the metal is. Um, It's a wide range, but a lot of silver. This coin is worth a lot. Um, This coin is worth uh, 6,000 denarii. Uh, one denarii is one day's wages, a good day's wages. Like it's, it's a solid wage for a day. Um, so it's 6,000 days wages. So it's 15 years of solid wages, which brings a total of one talent to $2.5 million in today's money. Um, the guy had 10 of these, seven of these. I don't know. He had, he had a lot of money. He had all in all uh, $20 million. That's what we're working with here. So this, it's a very, very rich patriarch, um, dealing with lots of money. Um, and so he talks to his slaves and he says, I'm going on a trip. Here's the money. And I want you to do some work with this money while you're gone. The question is, why couldn't this man do the work by himself while he was home? We're actually going to answer that. And we're going to get to that in a bit. There's a solid reason why he would never do what they're doing. Um, so, uh, the master has $20 million. He gives the first one $12.5 million. I probably would have just left at that point. Um, However, uh, he invests that and he doubles the money to $25 million. The second one takes $5 million and makes $10 million out of it. Invests it, 
doubles it, 100% returns. Um, the third guy gets $2.5 million, buries it in the ground till the master comes back, and then he digs it back up and hands the master his money. He says, here you go. I took care of the money. Um, now, the question that is raised in this passage is who did the right thing? Who is it that actually made the right decision? And the fact about this question is um, that the answer to this question of who did things right is not universal, nor is it actually obvious, um, as much as you might think it is. It, it really depends on where and when you grow up that determines what you see in this passage. And, and people who grew up in different situations in different parts of the world at different times in human history have seen things differently in this passage. And this is really important to talk about. Um, because there is this thing, it's called social location. Um, if you've never heard the term, it's a psychological term, sociological term. It has to do with where you sit in the fabric of society. Um, if the whole thing is weaved together, where are you? There are positions of, of advantage, there are positions of disadvantage in society, depending on where you were born um, and what you've been through, your history, who your people were and are, um, you will have different areas of advantage or disadvantage, uh, more access to power or less access to power. Um, it gives us status and it, it can actually block us from having status. And in a certain sense, it can... It can it very much contributes to the reality in which you live your life. It, it determines how you see the world. It determines how you read the scriptures. It determines a lot. And so this may be a bit of an uncomfortable conversation for some of us today. I want to ask you first off to sort of sit in it. I want you to sort of reject your defenses. I want you to kind of put them down and hang out with me as we sort of time travel with this passage and we look at this passage at different points in human history and how it has been determined. Because the fact is, the things that, that on, the, on the high side, on the advantage side of the social location, um, the areas in which you exist actually help determine what you see and how you read. Um, if you are educated, you're in the top 3% of, of Americans um, in American history, among the top 3%. Um, and if you're educated in things of the scripture, you're going to read it a particular way. The people on the other end of the spectrum are not. If you are part of a majority religion, if you're English speaking, if you're able-bodied, you have access um, um, to more opportunities than other people do. Um, there, are, there are ways that people who are infertile are oftentimes, who are fertile, are, are affirmed, and people who cannot have children are ignored, and time is not poured into them. Um, if you're younger, you're more valuable in society. If you're more attractive, you are seen more than people who are considered unattractive, who feel invisible and unseen. Um, if you're white and if you're heterosexual, you tend to have uh, more of a voice and people tend to listen to you more, um, which means you can speak with more authority and more confidence in society. Um, these are all areas of social location that you come from. And when you think about this and how you check off these boxes, um, you might need to ponder the fact that there are people on the opposite ends of every spectrum who are reading the same text from a different place and who are seeing different characters in the, in, in the scriptures and who are um, identifying with these characters that you have never identified with. Characters that you've brushed right over who mean nothing to you, but others see it and they're like, oh, that means something. Um, people who are, uh, people who um, grew up in an orphanage, who grew up orphaned, without parents, didn't know them were, and were raised, maybe adopted into families, oftentimes when they find out that the reason Jesus 
likely was never married was because of the, um, the conspicuous situation of his birth, that he couldn't definitively claim his father, and people mocked him, because rumor has it, it's a virgin birth. What are we going to do with that? And now he's ineligible to get married, um, and he has to live the rest of his life alone. Um, people hear this who, who grew up in families um, who are unwanted, people who are single, and they hear these things, and then they can suddenly identify with Jesus in different ways. Um, um, the eunuch in the story, where the eunuch is reading the, the scriptures, and, and Peter rides upon him and sees him, and he says, are you understand what you're saying? He's like, yes. But the fact is, he's never been allowed to worship. He's never been allowed to enter into the temple um, because he's in a sexual minority. Um, and he's never been allowed to. And Peter says, let me talk to you. Let me baptize you. I want you to come into our community and meet Jesus and worship with us. Um, these kinds of things you skip right over and never think about, but there are members of, of your community that read these things that hold on to them and has incredible intense meaning for them, okay? Um, and the fact is, um, psychologists tell us that the default human setting is if it is familiar, it is better. And when you see someone who is like you, you tend to affirm them more and say, you are like me, I understand you, you are better, and I will listen to you more, um, this is a normal default human setting. It is something we need to be aware of because as we are moving throughout our day, we need to see this and understand um, it is possible I'm, I'm not looking at things from other people's viewpoints. And so when we bring this and we come to the text and, and the scriptures, when we read a story like this, who did the right thing being the question um, that answer is not always universal. Most of you, I would argue, see it like this, that these three did the right thing and this person did the wrong thing. Am I right? I would say I am. Um, I was raised this way. This is what the vast majority of Christians for the last few hundred years, this is how they have told the story, but it is not always how it has been told. This is the, uh, the Western European Christian interpretation. Um, and there's a reason for that. Not saying anyone did anything wrong. I'm saying um, the reason that we see this is because success has social location. Um, we are a society um, that values leadership. We value the leader, the CEO, the wealthy man or woman. Um, they are the one to emulate. We are a people who are, are fans of self-help. Um, of betterment, of making yourself better, of pulling yourself up and climbing your way out and doing better and better and better. And we believe in you and we believe you, you can accomplish the things you want to accomplish and all your dreams can come true if you just apply yourself and work hard enough. And success in your mind looks like this. I worked hard and I got dividends and it all came back. There was a return on my investment. That's not wrong. That's normal. That's what you see and it's okay. Um, that is not always what Christians have seen. Um, in, in Eastern minority Christian commentaries, what you will oftentimes see is that these three are portrayed as the evil ones. And this man over here who didn't do what they were doing is portrayed as the one who actually did the godly thing and is the Christ figure in the story, not the master. Why, though? Why is it um, that they'll see something like this? Um, and again, the main issue is our social location and our definition of what, what it means to have success. What does it mean to be successful? Um, and so oftentimes this passage is, is taught and, and the message comes across. It is God has entrusted you with money in your life. 
um, with wealth, with whatever you have, whatever comes into your power, um, you use that the best you can. Don't waste it. I affirm all of that. I fully agree with all of that. Anything that passes through your hands is yours to do the absolute best for the kingdom of God with and to, um, to not squander, to not be selfish, not to make it yours, but to keep it God's um, and to use it for his kingdom. I affirm all of that. Um, I don't necessarily think that's what this text is bringing to the table. And so now we're going to open up the text and I think you'll see it as well when I'm done. Um, so we're going to start off right here, Matthew 25, 18. It says, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, um, burying your money um, in the ancient world was the safe and right thing to do. It was how you protected your money. There are plenty of passages in scriptures where somebody finds Buried treasure, right? You ever seen those allusions to scriptures of buried treasure? That's, that's not a reference to pirates at all. Nobody stole it and hid it. This is somebody's money who puts it in a pot of clay and digs a hole and puts it away and buries it on their own land because they're probably in the military going off to war. And while they're gone, um, inflation wasn't a big deal back then. It was not something they worried about. And when they came back, all that money would be there. There was nowhere for them to put their money that would be safe from marauders, from cities being trampled. So when, when Jesus once talks about a, uh, someone who finds a buried treasure in a field and he buries it again and he saves up his money, sells everything to buy the field and that treasure is now his. It belongs to whoever owns the field. If you steal that treasure, um, that's punishable by death. And everyone would know that you didn't have that kind of money. Um, so... Um, the man who had received one bag of gold went off. He dug a hole in the ground and he put his master's money in the ground. This is the honorable thing to do. It is the safest thing you can do to protect the money for the master. Okay? Um, people are still today finding regular caches of gold Roman coins. This cache was found a few, several years back by a, uh, a couple in Italy just walking on their, lawn, on their land and then digging a hole for a fence post. And there's a crunch. And then you find um, a jar full of Roman gold. What a good day. Not bad, right? <laughs> Okay, um, I bet the museums took it, though. Huh? Huh? I bet they did. Now, um, so to bury your money in today's world, though, is irresponsible. Um, it's the wrong thing to do because we have things like inflation. It's just a bad move. Uh, you're going to lose money. It's not being a good steward of anything. You at least put it in the bank and get a nice, you know, 5-8% return, whatever you, whatever you can get. Um, it causes your money to actually shrink in value because of inflation. It means that you're being wasteful. And a valid critique of these men... Um, in, from today's society is to say that the other, two, the other two did the right thing and this guy did the wrong thing. That's a valid critique. You can see that. Um, however, there's more angles to this than just buried gold. Um, there's also um, the monetary angle. What did the Torah say about how to handle our wealth and our business and our money? And Jesus', Jesus audience being Jewish here, Matthew's audience being Jewish, what would they have thought about? So first off, there's a few things you need to see. It starts off, it says, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once, put his money to work, and gave five bags more. Um, so also, the one, uh, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. So they're both making 100% returns. What does the Torah say about this? So first off, the Torah, um, the word Torah is, is, is a word that in the Hebrew literally means a finger pointing. It is the direction that God's people are supposed to go. Um, it's not so much like it's a bunch of things I have to obey. It is a goal. It is a way to live. It was considered beautiful. It was a path to walk, okay? In Exodus 16, we see a clear warning against storing surplus in their day. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. 
The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it, those who gathered little did not have too little. And each one gathered as much as he needed. Now, in modern day society, we read stuff like this and we're like, we just throw out political buzzwords like communism, socialism, blah, 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 blah. None of those things existed back then. This is a tribal uh, culture. Um, there were no refrigerators and there no, were no bank accounts. What you had is what you had. If you were going to live for that day, you had to have something to eat. And a poor person who has no cattle to milk or to eat, no chickens to lay eggs, a poor person who has no way to provide for themselves and no money to buy food must be taken care of by the person next to them or they die. And in the ancient world, community was vastly more important than wealth. And so you take care of each other. This is how God's people were to live. This is why you, what you see in Acts 2 uh, with the church living in community, apart from the world, not aligning to the patterns of the world. Um, vastly different. Then you see in Leviticus 25, the prohibition against charging interest and profiteering off of the poor. This is a huge deal. In our day and age, um, when everything go bad and the poor start suffering, when there's a housing crisis and everything starts crashing, the smart thing to do is to buy up all the houses that the poor people have lost and to profit from them. I'm not offering a commentary on whether that's right or wrong. You have the Spirit of God within you to help make these decisions. I'm saying in the ancient world, um, God's people were to be very conscious of the people who are suffering. And instead of profiting from it, they, they intended personally to help them out of it. And so we have this prohibition. It says, do not take interest of any kind, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. Under no circumstances is it okay for someone to be forced to move out of your community. They are one of the images of the face of God in your community. And how dare you force them to move on? You gather them closer and you take care of them. Okay? A totally different way of living, a totally different mindset from our day and age. And then you have the third one, uh, which is Isaiah 5.8. By the way, did you notice they're not allowed to charge interest? If you loan money, you get back what you lent out. You don't charge money because putting people in debt is the first step towards exiling them, towards bondage. And God called people out of bondage. Isaiah 5.8, a warning against overexpansion in business. Um, Woe to you who adds house to house and joins field to field until no space is left. And then you live alone in the land. In our day and age, um, it is the right thing to do to grow your business and to cannibalize all the other businesses and to grow it bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, The scriptures uh, in their day um, commanded the people of God um, to have business that provides for you steadily but didn't grow to swallow up other people lest you live alone. In our day, we think, you know what I want? I want like 80 acres and a house right in the middle of it and a big gate that I hit a button and it opens and it slams behind me and I drive through the woods to my house and I'm all alone. Wouldn't that be paradise? And the ancient people are like, of course not. Of course not. That doesn't make, why would you ever want to live like that? That's the mind of a selfish person. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Because I see pictures of Montana sometimes, and I'm just like, yeah, there's a lot of land there. Um, so the ancient mindset was nothing like you have it today. Money was different. Society was different. Business was different. It wasn't about you. It was about everyone. Um, and so we come back to our passage. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Oh, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Not there yet. So it's not just, um, it's not just the Israelites that understood the... Um, the prohibitions against what these two men were doing. Because now you can kind of see like, oh, these guys weren't actually living by the Torah. They weren't even living by Greek standards because the Gentiles, the Greek, the Greco-Roman citizens of Rome, um, 
they, they believed it was wrong to live this way too um, because it was an honor system. You lived and died by your honor. If you gain more honor, you move up in society. If you lost honor, you move down in society. And you could lose everything if you lost honor. Um, and in, in, a, in a world of limited goods, we, we are always making more money now. We're like, we're printing more money all the time so there's always more coming. Um, in the ancient world, there was literally a, a set amount of money. So when you gathered more, others literally had less. And this is how they viewed their world. Um, and so for someone, um, because it, money was limited, like literally limited and already distributed an increase in the share of one person automatically meant a a loss for someone else and honorable people and people who wanted more honor did not try to get more those who did were automatically considered dishonorable and even thieves but there was a way around it there was a loophole um so the master can have honor and gain honor and lose honor by his actions a slave is not considered a person They had no honor. There was nothing to lose. There was nothing to gain. And so slaves oftentimes would be highly trained in economics and finances. And and, and what would happen is what the master could not do by taking his money and investing it when he was there, what he could do though was leave, give his money to his servants, and then they would do all the work of the investing and doubling the money because they they couldn't lose honor. And then when the guy came back, His money has doubled, tripled, quadrupled, and he has not lost a shred of honor. And this became just normal for the Roman Empire. It was a way you could hold on to your honor and still grow and grow and grow what you wanted to have. Um, It was a bit of a loophole. And so these two servants are doing and taking part in this, in this sort of evil scheme of um, if they're making 100% returns, that means there's farmers that likely got kicked off of their land, that likely went homeless. Their entire families have to move on. They lose their community. They lose everything. And now someone has just taken your land in your field and given, and, and they've received more. In the ancient world, this was evil, not just in the, in the Jewish world, in the secular world. Um, and so we have the response of the third servant. Uh, the man who had received one bag of gold came, Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. So here is what belongs to you. So when I was growing up, I was always taught that the master is the Christ figure. And I never really paid attention to the text where it describes the character of the master. It says, you're a hard man. Investing where you have not sown, gathering seed where you have not scattered. And the master affirms all of this, by the way, in a second. He says, yeah, you're right. That's me. And I skipped right over it. I think maybe I didn't want to see Jesus this way. And in fact, when you read it in the Greek, the word used there for a hard man is the word skleros. Everyone say skleros. skleros. Trying to keep you awake. Skleros. Uh, so in the Greek version of the, of the Bible that Matthew's audience was reading, this is the same word used to describe Pharaoh in his treatment of his slaves. And I don't think we're describing Jesus in the terms of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the one who said, hey, all you slaves, um, you're going to make bricks day in, day out forever. This is your new existence. All you Israelite slaves, you're going to make bricks. God's people, make me bricks. And a little later, hey, um, you're no longer going to get straw to make your bricks, but I don't want you to make any less bricks. I just want you to gather more straw on your own. And it's getting harder and harder, and you have to produce the same amount, and you have to squeeze more out of less and more out of less and more out of less. And you kind of look at this, and you think, I can see a lot of parallels in today's society. This is, this is how we're taught to function. Squeeze more out of less. 
And he says, I knew that you were a hard man, that you like to take what you didn't even work and you didn't even plant. You didn't sow any of this and you're reaping all of it. And so he pulls that other guy and he says, here, have what is yours. And then there is the response of the patriarch. First off, he doesn't deny any of this. He actually affirms it. His master replies, you wicked and lazy servant. I want to pause right there. Where have you heard that phrase? This is what we sometimes call the poor. Um, This is what we sometimes call those on government assistance, is it not? How many times have you heard this? People described as, well, they made a lot of bad choices, so you're saying they're evil. And they just refused to work, so you're saying they're lazy. This is not, this is not a, new, a new insult to wield at poor people. This is an ancient insult. It always has, has existed. It's a moral judgment on the lives of people because of what they have. Um, you wicked and lazy servants. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I haven't scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever, has, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside. So I want, I want, to, I want to hearken back to when Scott McKnight was here. We talked about Onesimus. We talked about this uh, Philemon and Philemon's slave Onesimus. What does the word Onesimus mean? Useful. What is this man just called this slave? Useless. The only thing, the slave couldn't gain honor. The only thing they actually wanted, though, was to be considered useful so that they could climb the ladder in their own household. He is taking even, even the man's identity from him and saying, you're useless to all, everyone. You, you, can't even, you can't even get money for me in the way that all these other slaves can And if you refuse to go along with what I'm doing, you're done. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, sorrow, gnashing of teeth, anger. Um, Just, he is being treated as somebody who is of no use to those in power. And maybe now you can begin to see why this, this passage for so long in, the, in, in other parts of the world has been interpreted the exact opposite way because they feel this. Imagine Matthew's church in the year 90 AD or so when Matthew is writing and the empire is bearing down upon them, rounding them up and killing them and they keep declaring, no, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. I will not go, I will not go along with your unjust ways of, of living your lives and, and your, your cities dwelling and living like this in complete... Um, injustice and immorality and oppression and, and hatred of each other. There's a way we were created to live. Jesus is Lord and I will follow Jesus and Jesus alone. However, there are seven other churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation that have actually bought in and are going along with the Roman Empire and are going along to get along so that they won't get oppressed because in their mind, um, uh, we'd rather not be martyrs. We'd rather not stand up for what is right. We can just kind of worship in private and then kind of benefit from the injustice going on. And what we see here in this passage is a message of sort of while we wait the true Lord's appearance, let's not be of use to evil people. Let's not be afraid of them, even though they threaten us. And they are threatening us with incredible fear of destruction. And they say, you know what? It's going to happen. We're going to be 
persecuted when we do the right thing. And so let's do it anyways. As far back as, as the fourth century, there's a man named Eusebius, Eusebius and Pamphili. Um, he writes about the same time as Augustus. Um, um, Augustine, and, and, he, and here's what he says. He says, Jesus' threat is not against the man who had hid the town, but against him who had lived dissolutely. The early Christians didn't even read this the way that we tend to read it. We're reading it from a particular viewpoint that is not universal. It doesn't mean you're going to learn things that are opposite of what God intends. It, it may affect how you view God, um, but we're definitely reading it through a unique place, a unique lens. Because none of the scriptures was written by people in positions of power that we are in. The entirety of the Bible was written by people who were small and weak and beaten down and hated and oppressed by every single person around them. And when Israel finally actually builds up an empire and takes over and they actually start importing slaves from Egypt, the voice of God actually shifts from the leaders of Israel to the prophets who enter into the king's chamber and say, you need to repent of of what we're doing here. It is always, and the, the, the prophets are always killed. The, the scripture is always written from the place of the lower end. Always. And so we have to admit, reading it from our end, we may be half blind. Um, there is, there's a man named uh, William R. Herzog II, a New Testament scholar. He says, the third man is a whistleblower who has unmasked the joy of the master for what it is. The prophets of exploitation squandered in wasteful excess. Hence, the third servant is punished for speaking the truth. And then there is um, lots of commentaries by our African-American brothers and sisters. Uh, Dr. Jack, uh, Michael Joseph Brown, who writes, this passage is about two slaves who use their master's money to make him wealthier and one that does not. In Jesus' day, these slaves would have been seen as greedy and dishonest. And he's right. He gets it. So what do we do? How do we read the Bible in a way that's charitable and equitable for all of our brothers and sisters who are following Jesus all around us? How do we see things from their side? What we really need and what I think we should try to grasp is a bit of sociological imagination, if you will, a bit of social imagination, a bit of like, here's where I am and that's fine. But where might someone else be reading from? What end of the spectrum might they be at? What might they see? And not just wondering, but going and gathering with them and praying with them and asking them, hey, just being honest, I've, for some reason, I've never thought about valuing your interpretation of scriptures because your life is so unfamiliar to me. Can we talk? Let's study together. Let's pray together. Let's take communion together. And let's listen to each other. One of the most powerful things of the early church that spurred this on was the fact that in the early church, the honor system was completely abolished. So the rich and the poor gathered together in the church. Men and women gathered together in the church. Um, um, the, the, The Jews and the Gentiles gathered together in the church. And they all sat together. And they pondered the path of Christ together and they listen to each other this alone helped them see God in so many ways that they needed to see God in and when Paul writes in first Corinthians chapter 12 he says just as the body though one has many parts but all its many parts from one body so it is with Christ when we come together as the body of Christ we should be a diverse group of people 
a, a, hom- a homogenous church that all looks the same is only hearing one side of God. It may be right and it may be true and it may be good, but it's half of it. In the same way that a room full of all men or all people of one color, if they're making decisions for a group of people, they're going to make the wrong decision because they're holding their hand over one of their eyes. Like they're, they're missing an entire other viewpoint. In the same way, a church trying to live out the gospel in our city, um, if we aren't listening to other viewpoints and listening to each other, then we are missing vital parts of theology, incredible parts of theology. So when Paul invokes the metaphor of the body of Christ, what he's doing is he's actually asking us to have some sociological imagination. He's saying, maybe you're the hand in the body. Maybe you're the hand. And I want you to ponder all of the things the hand does that are important. But I also want you to ponder the fact that you are not the ear and that you cannot do any of the jobs of the ear. You don't have the journey of the ear or the eye or even the elbow. And so what you need to do is understand the part that they play and how you can assist. The mouth exists to feed itself, but it needs a hand to grab the food and stuff it in its pie hole, right? So the hand itself actually can't do any of its work without the elbow. And no matter how much you like to ignore the elbow until you bump it on something, like no matter how much you like to ignore it, the hand is nothing if you don't have an elbow. There's no point to it. It accomplishes nothing on its own. This is how Paul wants us to view the body of Christ. All the people who you have not listened to, who you have ignored and just said, well, there they are. Um, I'm this, and this is really important, and I have my background and my story. I'm going to speak my story. Oftentimes, you will absolutely miss what God is doing in your life and the lives of people around you because you will not submit yourself to learn from someone else in the church. And I'm not talking just our local church. The church. Everywhere. Everywhere. Um, So the hand, you know, brings all of the strengths and weaknesses that the hand brings. And, you know, these are some of the challenges that I face as a hand. Here are some of the joys that I face as a hand. And then ask the hand asks itself, how can I be in conversation maybe like with the elbow? Someone who has an entirely different perspective than I do. An entirely different perspective. We need to ask each other, what is your perspective? What do you see that I don't see? What am I missing? It's possible that the third servant is waving the bag of gold in your face and saying, um, I'm not going to take part in what you're doing because it's wrong. And, I, and you need to see it. And you don't see it. And so I'm going to reveal it to you. And it may hurt a little bit. That's part of growth. It's part of birth. It's part of everything that we need to move forward. Church, you, me, we cannot have a full view of the world, of the body of Christ, or of God without being in contact with that other part of the body. I cannot fully participate in the body of Christ if I really believe that that person over there, that piece of the body has nothing to contribute to me. Have you ever looked at another person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, a member of the body of Christ globally, and said, they have nothing to say to me? I'm absolutely, I have nothing to learn from them. If you have, you're actually literally contributing to the problem of disunity in the church. Other churches, whether they like our expression of local church or not, it is not them and us. It is we, all of us. Every other church in Tampa that you have come from, that you have been to, that you have friends at, they are our church. They are our brothers and our sisters. We are for them. We are not against them. And to be for somebody is sometimes to go to them and sit and say, hey, what you're doing here, I think it's wrong and I think it's hurting people. But it, to be for somebody uh, does nothing if you, just, if you just push them away and say, they're not like me. They're not one of us. I have nothing to do with them. They're not one of us. That is not the Christian posture at 
all. We need the hands to have the humility to need the elbow, right? Like we need our conservative uh, and liberal brothers and sisters. We need our Baptists and Anglicans and Episcopalians and Presbyterian brothers and sisters. We need the voices of our sisters, of women in the church to be spoken. We need to hear the perspectives of people of color. We need to hear the perspectives of Iraqi Christians, Egyptian Christians. We need to hear the perspective, not just of our Israeli brothers and sisters in Christ, but our Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ, and to hear what they're going through and to hear what they're going Going through and to say, what is Jesus saying to all of us collusively together? What is the message here for us? And how can we better love each other and express God's love in each other's presence and in each other's lives and in each other's communities and worlds? How can we do that? Um, if we emphasize one person over the other, we very well might be silencing the third, ser- the, the third servant who was blowing the whistle at us. We have to have humility and understand, in the church, it is full egalitarian, it is equal. Jesus is the pastor. I'm a teacher, I'm a shepherd, I hold an office of a pastor. We are equals. I, I need to learn from you. You need to learn from me. We all need to spend more time in the presence of people who are nothing like us, lending them our ear, letting them speak into our lives, listening to them as they read the Bible as they read the word, praying with them as they pray, taking communion with them, looking them in the eye and say, hey, the body of Christ was broken for you. It was broken for me. Us. We are one. Um, we must learn to listen to each other. It's not us versus them. It's all of us. We are one church. Every church in Seminole Heights, every church in Tampa, we are the body of Christ. Um, why don't we take communion? This is the full representation of that. Our communion servers, you guys can go and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, Communion is the good gift. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist, depending on your background that you grew up in. The Eucharist, good, charis is the word for gift. Um, It is what we have for the world. It is what we have for each other. We allow ourselves to be broken and poured out so that others can be fed and filled up so they can receive what they have. We give of our money. We give of our time. We give of our abilities. We give of our intellect. We give our words. We wrap our arms around. All we can do is be broken for each other. Hearts broken, Wallets broken open for each other. This is what we do for the world around us. We, we pour ourselves out for them. Sometimes it's sacrificial. This is what this represents because this is what Jesus did for us. His entire human body was pierced and crucified and whipped and beaten and poured out. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Jesus poured out for you, for your healing, for your salvation. And then there's the invitation to follow Jesus and do the same for others. Let's pray and let's take communion. Father, thank you for this place and these people. We love you, Father. Fashion us in your image. Make us whole. I pray all this in your name. Amen.